massive world with 7.7 .7 billion people who are constantly on the move. There are some people sitting right next to you while others are thousands of miles away. Is there a connection between you and them? If there is a connection, should we do something about it? How do we have an impact here, near, and far? and welcome to Northridge Church. Whether you're joining us from one of our Rochester area locations or maybe you're checking us out online, we're just glad that you were able to join us today. My name is Josh Horn. I'm the Director of Outreach here at Northridge Church. And I wanna begin our time today by talking about New York City because I believe that there is one setting that connects all of our images of that city from television to movies to pop culture and everything in between. So picture it with me, an upscale Manhattan restaurant Okay, it's the end of the dinner shift and a busboy is carrying the last bag of trash out the back door to the dumpster. Where is he? He's in a back alley, right? There's a buddy cop comedy movie with the grizzled veteran and the rookie cop chasing the bad guy. Where does the bad guy turn? Down another back alley, right? At the other end of that alley, there's a chalk outline on the ground from yet another episode of Law and Order. And if it's not where the murder happened, it's where the robbery happened or where the deal went bad, right? Little Orphan Annie chasing the dog that got loose. The dog turns down yet another back alley, right? Across town, somewhere else in New York City, out of the sewers, in the shadow, jump the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in another back alley, right? Daredevil and the Defenders battling the villains in Hell's Kitchen. The seedy underworld criminals hiding in another back alley. It seems that for every image we have of New York City with the glitz and glamour of Times Square, there's another accompanying scene with a back alley. It's just another character in the story. It hides the heroes and the villains from the tale. So this brings me to the greatest New York superhero, Spider-Man. Spider-Man needs New York City, right? He needs the tallest buildings to be able to scout out crime and swing into action. But I believe that Spider-Man also needs the back alley because it was in the back alley where Spider-Man fought off the criminals, rescued the girl and got a kiss, an upside down kiss from the love of his life, Mary Jane in 2002's Spider-Man, right? <laughs> Superman needs a phone booth to go from zero to hero, but I think Spider-Man needs a back alley. In the more recent Spider-Man Homecoming, Peter Parker crosses the street, runs into an alley, and makes his transformation from zero to hero into his Spider-Man persona in another back alley. For every story in New York City, the back alley is just another character, right? So here's where I drop the soul-crushing truth bomb of this entire message. If you take nothing else away, I'm kidding. But here's the truth bomb. In New York City, particularly Manhattan, there are fewer than a dozen actual alleys. <clears throat> There's some glorified loading docks, but fewer than a dozen actual alleys. It's not, just not a part of the character of the city. 150 years ago, when city planners were looking at the grid of New York City, they decided that the tight blocks, the closer streets, meant that there was no need for crisscrossing shortcuts through back alleys. So given the choice between more road or more building space, the better investment was always to build more building. When you think of a city of alleys, you're thinking of Chicago or Philadelphia. You're not thinking of New York City, right? Yeah, truth bomb, right? <laughs> But here's the thing, um, movie makers know that we have this broken image of New York City, and so they 
kind of lean into that. When they film scenes in New York City, they'll film some iconic locations, right? Like a Times Square, an Empire State Building, Chrysler Building, some iconic bridges. But then when they need to film a back alley scene, they film it usually in California and Hollywood. That scene from Spider-Man, where he gets his upside down kiss and beats the bad guys, that scene was filmed on a lot in Burbank. And then the scene from Spider-Man Homecoming, Peter Parker really does cross 31st Street in Queens, but as soon as he enters the alley, the rest of that scene was filmed in Atlanta. They filmed a New York alley scene in Atlanta to give you the look and feel of a real gritty New York alley. So are there things in our lives like this, big things, where the information is there and we just miss what's really happening in front of us? I believe there are, and I believe one of the biggest examples of this is the way we read our Bibles. Because we fracture our Bibles and read them in chunks, and because we don't look at the big picture, I think we miss a thread that runs from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end. This alleys thing, this isn't just something that outsiders miss. Even actual New Yorkers miss this truth about New York City. There are many New Yorkers that don't realize their city doesn't have all these alleys in it that they think they do. But we do the same thing with our Bibles. I think there's a thread running throughout the Bible that not just outsiders miss, but those of us who have been looking at the Bible for years or even decades miss this as well. And I don't think it's a secret. It's not one of these things where we have to be able to speak ancient Hebrew or do cryptic, weird Bible math to find the answer. We don't have to take the pages of the Bible up to the east window on the night of a full moon to get the light to shine through so that we can see this. I think it's obvious. And so my big audacious goal today is to walk through the entire Bible in 15 minutes from the very beginning to the very end and pull this thread to help us understand this truth more deeply and why it's so central to our faith. And if you're new to Christianity, new to faith, maybe you don't believe any of this, this is your chance to just check out. You can sit back, relax, enjoy this family talk. I'm talking to those of you who would say you're a follower of Jesus. And if you are new, I mean, you can enjoy a laugh on our behalf because I'm going to point all this out and you're going to sit there and be like, man, this is their holy book and they totally missed this. It's super obvious. So just enjoy. But those of you who would say you are a follower of Jesus, lean in. I'm going to go fast for the next 15 minutes because I want to walk from the very beginning to the very end and pull at this thread. So where am I going to start? At the very beginning, the beginning. I'm going to start in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And Genesis tells the account of the creation of the world. And for the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, God is interacting with all of humanity. All of humanity is in connection with God. We see him open the scene by creating the world, filling it with plants and animals, putting the first humans in there. And then he speaks to the first humans in the very first chapter of the Bible. And he gives them this command. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the, gr on the ground. God gives us the task of growing our people, of multiplying and filling the entire earth. And then we are to take care of the world that he gave us. But the story is fairly short-lived because in the very next chapter, in chapter two, God gives us the first rule, the first prohibition. He says that we can eat from any tree in the entire garden, that it's all good food for humans, except one tree. We should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man, you tell us not to push a red button. We're gonna push a red button, right? So sin enters the picture. We sin, we disobey. Sin is this disobedience and separation from God. And because sin enters the picture, things start to spiral out of control. And we have a world full of violence and chaos for these first 11 chapters. But in the midst of this chaos, we see the formation of the first nations on earth. If we look in chapter 11, verse one, it says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. 
As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, when most people read this passage, when they talk about this passage, the main takeaway is humanity's pride, that we're trying to rival God to make a name for ourselves, right? But I think there's more to it. When we look at verse four, we're able to zoom in on our motivation. It says, otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This effort to build this city and this tower is a direct challenge to that first command God gave us to multiply and to fill the earth. We refused to fill the earth, so he made it possible for us to do that. God's response, verse eight, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. They stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. God's scattering of the people was not a punishment. It was intended to help us live out the command that he gave us. He gave us a command to scatter and we wouldn't do it. So the language barriers we see today, the cultures that we see today, the direct result of God enabling us to live out that command. But in the very next chapter in the Bible, things start to change. So for 11 chapters, we've been watching the mess of humanity spiral out of control. The death, destruction, the chaos. It almost feels like our, our modern news cycle every single day. And yet God sets the stage for an incredible rescue plan in the very next chapter. Because moving forward, starting in chapter 12, God no longer interacts directly with all of humanity, but he interacts with one man, one family, the family of Abraham and his descendants and family tree. Look at chapter 12 where God makes a promise to Abraham. It says, the Lord said to Abram, this was his name before he changed it to Abraham, he says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this is the start of that thread that I want to pull. God promises that all the peoples of earth, the peoples that in the previous chapter he had literally just scattered across the planet, that all of those peoples will be blessed through Abraham. God is doing something for those people through Abraham. Our modern Bibles are divided kind of into two broad chunks. The first three quarters are what, are we call, what we call now the Old Testament. And for the rest of this Old Testament, we see God interacting with a small slice of humanity. We see him interacting with the descendants of Abraham, who we call the ancient Hebrews or the ancient Israelites. But even though he's interacting directly with this small slice of humanity, God shows us that he cares about all peoples, not just the Israelites. In fact, the very next book of the Bible after Genesis is Exodus, and in Exodus, we find those descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, as slaves in the nation of Egypt. And God sends a leader, Moses, to rescue those people from Egypt. And with that leader comes 10 plagues that wreck the economy, they devastate the land, they hurt the people of Egypt. But why? Why does God do all of this? It says in verse 16 in Exodus chapter 9, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. These plagues, that rescue, it wasn't ultimately about freeing the Israelites. That was just a method that God was using to show the whole world that he was real and that he was at work. A few books later, in the book of Joshua, the Israelites have now escaped from Egypt and they're entering into the land that God had promised Abraham and they're recounting the story of what God did in Egypt to their children and they would tell the story this way, he, God, did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. 
Again, it wasn't ultimately about Israel for Israel's sake. It was about showing all the peoples of earth that God was real and active and keeps his promises. Uh, Maybe you've heard of David and Goliath. Well, that takes place a few books later in the book of 1 Samuel. In that, in that account, uh, the Philistines are at war with the Israelites, right? And the Philistines have a secret weapon on their side, a guy that's almost 10 feet tall, literally a giant to fight for them. And the Israelites are scared to death to take on this guy. Nobody will except one man, a young man, essentially a boy by the name of David. And spoiler alert, David kills the giant. It's a whole thing. You got to check it out. It's awesome. But he kills the giant. He puts a rock and a sling and he nails the giant right in the head and the giant goes down. But before David takes that battle on, he declares why that victory will matter. He says the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. It wasn't about a giant. It wasn't about a sling. It was about showing the whole world that God was active And I'm telling you, that's just a sampling of the many times throughout the Old Testament that God demonstrates his care for all peoples of earth, not just Israel. In fact, he gives special laws to the people of Israel to force them to take care of foreigners and refugees living within their borders. God makes decisions throughout the Bible based on what people will think of him. He cares about his own reputation because he wants people to know and to follow him. The Old Testament even closes with a dozen books by what are called prophets. These are people chosen to speak God's rules, God's law, God's words to the nation of Israel. And time and again, these prophets scold the people of Israel because of how they treat outsiders and because of the ways they were tarnishing God's reputation. And the prophets were all pointing to a rescue, the rescue, a special rescue plan. The last quarter of our Bibles is what we call the New Testament, And it opens with the life and ministry of Jesus, a distant descendant of this Abraham. And the thread doesn't let up. Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, constantly showed care for people on the outskirts, people outside of Israel, even though he was there to reach Israel as well. In fact, there was one instance where a religious leader from Israel came to Jesus in secret at night to ask him questions about all the things he was teaching. And Jesus gave him the most iconic line in all of the Bible. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The thread's even written there in Jesus' words. There's two things, and I want to start with this one. The first thing to see is Jesus died for you. This invitation begins as a personal one. He made an offer to you, to I, to all of us to follow him. If we accept that what he did really happened and what he said is true and we follow him, sin's grip on my here and now and my eternity is gone. But he didn't stop with that invitation to each of us. It also said that Jesus died for the world. This invitation is also universal. Jesus sacrificed himself for every people. He didn't just die for the ancient Israelites, but for everyone so that you and I all have an opportunity to believe in him and to follow him. And then after Jesus died, he rose from the dead. And this uh, idea, this message, he turned into a mission for his followers. In the book of Acts, which chronicles kind of the, the exploits, the adventures of the earliest followers of Jesus and the formation of the church, Jesus says this to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is our mission. 
He uses the word witnesses. He's literally telling them, you've seen me, you've seen what I've done, you see what I'm about, and you know that I died for all people. So go and tell all the people I died for. And he even has a geographic connection to it. He says, let's start right here in Jerusalem where we're gathered, but then we move from there to Judea, the surrounding countryside, then on to Samaria, the next region over. And then since we're out there, let's reach the whole world. Let's reach everyone with this message. Remember back in the Tower of Babel where God scattered all of humanity across the earth? Well, here God was scattering his followers to bring that message to every corner of the earth. And then in the very next line in Acts, Jesus is gone. The disciples are trying to figure out how to live this mission out, but God doesn't leave them stranded. He, in fact, just jumpstarts the process. When they're gathered together in chapter two, getting ready for a festival in Jerusalem, God sends a a noise through the room. Uh, It sounds like a hurricane blasting into the room. And then they look around and over each other's heads, they see these tongues of fire. I'll let you try to figure out the picture. But each of them is then able to speak a language they weren't able to speak before. And then it says in Acts 2.5, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So Peter gets up and takes advantage of this moment. He's the lead follower of Jesus' team at this point. And he gets up and he tells about what Jesus did. He talks about all the things Jesus said. And then he makes this declaration. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What better time to get the message of Jesus out to the scattered ends of the earth than when all of those countries are gathered together for this festival in Jerusalem. And now they're able to hear the message in their own language. And then they're scattered out to bring that message back to their homelands when the festival's over. I'm telling you, this is just tip of the iceberg kinds of stuff. There are so many instances throughout the Bible that God cares and is pursuing all people on earth, not just one slice of humanity, not just those who are on the inn. And where is this all headed? I'll take you to the very end. We've made it from Genesis. Now we're headed to Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. You'll find it at the very back of your text. Revelation is, uh, is written by John, a follower of Jesus, and it's a description of a set of visions that John had about the future, things that were to come in eternity, in heaven, in the future. And he paints this incredible picture in chapter seven. It says, after this, I, John, looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Uh, The lamb was a a term given to Jesus to describe him. He was called the, the sacrificial lamb, the lamb on our behalf, the sacrifice on our behalf. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Did you catch that line early in? Listen to what it's saying. Eternity, heaven, everything that's to come when this time ends includes people from every tribe, Every language will be spoken in heaven. I mean, if you hate diversity, you will hate heaven. But this is it. This is the goal. This is the picture. This is the end game. This is the plan. The goal that's before us. So just to recap, because I'm one of those guys, I love to summarize all the points. Just to recap, in the beginning, God created the world. Sin entered the world, separated us from God. He asked us to scatter, but we wouldn't. So he scattered us and set in motion a plan through one family, the family of Abraham, a plan to bless and ultimately rescue every tribe, every language, every people on earth. 
And he gives us the mission of reaching those people with the goal of a family of God that bridges every divide. One people in all of its diverse image of God, beauty, and creativity. One people gathered together worshiping God for all of eternity. That Tower of Babel and our sinfulness, all of that undone because of what Jesus did. And God has been orchestrating this incredible plan from the very beginning, but we get to have a part in it. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, we see this incredible scene where Jesus has risen from the dead and he's interacting with his followers and he actually explains the mission to them, the mission that's in front of us and how to live it out. It says, God said to them, or Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Spirit, or, yeah, of the Son and of the Spirit, um, and then teaching them to do everything, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I promise I've read this passage so many times. Just a rough moment. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus begins with leveraging his divine authority to give us a command. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And we know that this command isn't just for the followers there in front of Jesus. This command is to endure forever because he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's meant to persist through time. And what is the command? The command is to make disciples. To make disciples or to make learners, to make students of Jesus, or maybe more simply to make followers of Jesus. And how do we do that? There's helper verbs in this passage. We do it by going, baptizing, and by teaching. That's the method by which we make disciples. But it doesn't just say make disciples. There's a qualifier there. It says to make disciples of all nations. When we hear the word nations, we tend to think geopolitically, right? We think of borders on a map or on a globe. But the heart of that word, maybe a better way to translate it, is to say people or people groups. It's the word ethnos, the root of our modern word ethnicity or ethnic. Jesus is telling us to reach all people groups. And Jesus attaches urgency to this people group-based group mission in Matthew chapter 24 when he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all people groups. It's the same word there, nations. And then the end will come. Jesus says that he's not going to undo everything that's wrong. He's not going to undo the power of sin in this world until every people group has the message of Jesus until that message, that image in Revelation can even come true, where there's followers of Jesus from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every people. So the goal is to see followers of Jesus from every people group, a people group defined by language, by culture, by borders, everything, people who can then take that message within their people group without hindrance to share it with others. And so it's with that goal in mind that I want to take a moment to ask your forgiveness as the director of outreach here at Northridge Church. So decades ago before I was here, our church was a, a quote-unquote missions-minded church. That meant that we were raising a lot of money and sending a lot of money overseas to make the gospel known, to make this good news known to people who had never heard of Jesus. But we were not living that out well right here where God had us, where we were living. And... Um, why would we send money overseas to do this and not do it right where he has us? So fast forward to about six years ago when I stepped into my role here, and, and I believe that 
up until that point, and then including my time as our director of outreach, we have been overcorrecting. Now, don't get me wrong. God is doing amazing things through Northridge Church. We're seeing lives change. We're seeing uh, marriages healed. We're seeing campuses growing, people being baptized. We're seeing incredible work being done. People from Northridge are all over the place in our city loving people and caring for them. But I would argue that that thread written throughout the Bible of a global church and a mission to make disciples among all people, that your typical Northridge attendee would not see that in the way that we engage globally. And sure, we've taken some steps. I don't want to discredit the work that we have done. We have partners around the world. Uh, We've been sending teams to Mara Mara in Chad, Africa. Many of you have followed along the story as we've interacted with this village, serving them and loving them and sharing the hope of Jesus. Many of you have sponsored children through Compassion International. Over 300 kids are sponsored right now through Northridge attendees in the nation of Honduras so that local churches there can serve and love people in those communities. But I believe something has to change. And today is a baby step to help us as a church begin to find the place where we're about both of these things, where in one hand we're stepping out into that grand story of a church among all peoples on earth, and we are meeting needs and sharing the hope found in Jesus right where we are in our community. In our community. Because we have a role to play in each place. Because it's not global versus local, we must do both. We can't become a church that on one hand only cares about those in foreign countries who need Jesus because here's the reality. You might go on a trip one or two weeks of a year to another place and share the gospel, but 98% of your time you'll be right here in the greater Rochester area and God has work for you to do here and there are people, that 755,000 people who don't know Jesus. But we also can't become so concerned with our local slice of the world that we miss that God has a grand plan to reach people from every remote corner of humanity. And sure, you might have a passion one way or the other. You might have a passion that leans you to cross an ocean to reach people or a passion that drives you to cross the street to reach people. But we cannot as a church do one or the other at the expense of the other one. So my ask for you today is to find your role in both places because I believe we each have a role here, near, and far. Today is about me asking you to help us, yeah, swing the pendulum back the other way without losing sight of our global mission. But it begins with here, within the walls of Northridge Church. What are you doing inside the walls at one of our campuses? Where are you serving? Where are you loving people? Where are you working through the local church? But then from there, what are you doing nearby, outside the walls of Northridge, but inside of our community? Are you taking care of the homeless? Are you caring for foster kids or walking alongside a family that is? Are you loving the sick? Are you reaching out to those in prison? Are you helping women facing unplanned pregnancies? Are you living pi squared? Are you praying for people, investing in them, and inviting them to take their next step in their spiritual journey? Are you sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with your neighbor? And then finally, what's your role far away? Are you praying for the work that's being done? Are you know, getting to know our partners around the world? Are you supporting the work of local churches through a sponsorship through Compassion International? Maybe you give a gift every year at our Beyond offering around Christmas time, but could you be doing more? Could you be getting your hands more active in what God is doing around the globe? And for a select few of you, maybe all this talk of a global commission has something stirring in your heart where you could see you leaving your life behind, dropping everything you have now to cross the ocean and to reach a people that have never heard of what Jesus has done for them. And just a a quick aside, 
Did you know in Rochester there are over 30,000 refugees from around the world? I mean, if you want to kill two birds with one stone and reach the nations and serve our community, walk alongside a refugee family trying to figure out how to do life in the U.S. But what is your role? What are you doing here, near, and far? And I do believe that you should have an answer for each of these. If you're feeling overwhelmed, I'm sorry, let me try to make it more practical for you. Here's three things. The first thing you can do is make time to learn. Learn about those we're connected to as a church, get to know the issues in our community, get to know our partners in countries like Kenya and Chad, Africa. Come hear the stories of what they're doing. Pray for the people that are working in these places. In fact, this summer, we'll have an opportunity for you to learn. We're going to have a special equip class, a two-week equip class in August, all about our global and local engagement, how we choose our partners to make sure we're maximizing our investment, our financial and physical resources. We're going to answer hard questions, questions like, does the clothing, the shoes, and the food that I donate to someone in another country, does it actually hurt them? Could it be wrecking the local economy? Because it might be. And should I give a dollar to that homeless guy in the corner? Or is he going to waste it? These are the questions we want to tackle in that time. And so come and learn. Then listen to those on the front lines. When one of our partners takes some time to visit Rochester from overseas, make time to come and hear their story. When we send a team to Chad, Africa this fall, come and dialogue with the team. Help us prepare to send that team well. And when they get back, invite them to come and tell their story in your community group. They bring the best pictures. It's awesome. But listen to those who are on the front lines. And then find someone who is serving and join them. Join someone who's already serving. There are passionate people serving in our community from all the corners of our church. Get involved with them and walk alongside them in that. We have a global team, an amazing group of people who pray for our foreign partners, who connect with them, who hear their stories, who rejoice with them, and they're sad with them when there's something to mourn. That global team is putting together care packages full of Skittles and Starbursts to send to the middle of Africa. Like, it's amazing the work they get to do. But we could partner you with them and you could start to serve in these areas. And I'm excited to share with you, you've heard a little bit of this already, but we've landed on dates in July in 2020, a little over a year from now, where we're gonna send our first teams to the nation of Honduras so that those of you who are sponsoring a child through compassion can travel, can see the family of the child and meet their child to be able to connect with the church and the school in which they participate. And I know this is a lot, it's still a lot. Even if I try to make it simple, it's still overwhelming. So let me close the gap one more time for you. On the bottom of your connections card, there's two checkboxes. One of them is to sign up for more information for this equip class. We'd love to share with you when it's coming and give you a chance to sign up for that. But then the other one is a checkbox to receive monthly beyond email updates. It's one email a month with opportunities, ways to serve, ways to be praying. Uh, if you want to go on that trip to Honduras, the first announcement to sign up for that is going to come via this email, so you're going to want to sign up. Um, and I'm asking you to commit to one email Open and read one email a month. Super low-hanging fruit. Receive, open, and read one email a month. And then from there, learn, listen, and join in on the serving. Just do something. Find your role here, near, and far. Uh, I want you to take a look at these pictures. These are pictures that our teams have taken from the village of Maramara. I've had the incredible privilege of being able to travel there the last four years to connect with the village and to connect with World Concern, who has a team on the ground there serving and loving and caring for this village. 
In these pictures, you'll see the strong, capable women of Mara Mara, leaders in the community who uh, bring business plans to fruition, who bring goods to market, work all day and all night in the fields to be able to provide for their families. You'll see the men of the village, leaders who have a vision for the future of their village, a vision for a flourishing Mara Mara. And they often joke, you've heard this joke before, but they often joke that they want to see Mara Mara become a great city like Rochester. And then the last picture is of Basha Katir, my good friend. Basha is the imam of the village of Maramara. He's in charge of the spiritual health of the community. And, and Basha should not be alive today. Um, he has a chronic hepatitis infection. He was given a few months to live, and yet he has passed that end date. Um, every day that he's alive is a gift from God. So God has him here for some reason. Uh, and there's this image in Revelation in chapter 5. It's this crazy picture where Uh, there's the throne of Jesus, King Jesus on the throne, and around the throne there are elders, there are creatures, uh, people who are singing to King Jesus on the throne. And they sing this song. They say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. The tribe that Mara Mara is a part of, a tribe of 100 to 150,000 people, our best guess is there are fewer than a dozen followers of Jesus in that entire tribe. And we can't even be sure there's any followers of Jesus because they often have to believe in secret. And yet, that image in Revelation and the one I read earlier tells me that someday when I take my seat around the throne of my King Jesus for all of eternity, there will be in that space, praising Jesus with me, people from that tribe, people from among their people, people who speak their language. So my prayer, my heartbeat, my hope is that when I take that seat, praising my king for eternity, that seated next to me somewhere will be Basha Katir or Adam or Miriam or any of the incredible people that I've met in Mara Mara. God has this global plan, a mission, people from every people group, and we can't let this become like the alleys of New York City where all the evidence is there and we totally miss something that seems so obvious. It's written throughout the Bible. God has a global plan, a global mission, and my question for you today is, will you be a part of it? Let me go ahead and pray for us. God, thank you so much for sending your son to die on our behalf and just praise you for this global mission, and I pray that you would tug at each of our hearts to figure out our role here, near, and far. We long to be used by you to make more and better followers of Jesus. I pray this all in his name. Amen.